you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What happens to trash once it hops into the trash truck from my garbage can? What is the value of a four-year education beyond the classes offered? Why would a federal investigator show up to a landfill? How do we turn play into learning? Don't miss the answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Winter is still hanging on in a few places around the country. But here in Southern California, the weather has been beautiful. So I've been starting to think about the Inventors Boot Camp this year. Inventors Boot Camp is a one-week experience for teens and teachers to learn mad MacGyver inventing skills such as 3D printing, 3D design, programming, electronics, and practical engineering. For more information, go to the ttinvent.com website and click on the Inventors Bootcamp button. We appreciate the great reviews you all have been leaving about the podcast. And we'd like to share the great interviews, like today's interview, with more educational innovators. There are two ways to help other people find our podcast. The best way is just to invite a friend or colleague to listen in with you, or send them to our podcast page at www.ttnbent.com podcast, or on iTunes or Stitcher, just search for Tabletop Inventing. The second way to help others find our podcast is to subscribe, listen, and leave us a rating and a review in iTunes or Stitcher. These three things help us rise in the ratings and become easier to find. Why all this fuss about spreading the word? Two words. World change. Now, about today's podcast, we're talking trash today. Well, not exactly like that. Today, we'll actually be talking to a former district manager for Waste Management, the Trash Collecting Corporation, about what happens to your trash after it leaves the can at the curb. Along the way, we'll also discover how one man's journey through high school to college to the workforce and back to college again led him to appreciate the value of an education. So our guest this afternoon is Mike Ghost. Mike is the general manager at Innovative Mechanical Services and soon to be a partner there. Uh, they're a small rigging company here in Southern California. Uh, previous to this, uh, Mike worked for a large waste management organization as the Southern California Area Heavy Equipment Manager. So Mike, tell us a little more about yourself. Oh, well, my name is Mike Ghost and uh, I've been in the heavy equipment industry for about 26 years now or you could say the equipment industry for 26 years. And I've worked my way up from the bottom, um, starting as a technician right out of uh, trade tech school. I worked my way up into management. As far as my career goes, that's kind of a short little reader's digest. Personally, I'm married, have three kids, three daughters, love them to death. And uh, the story of uh, being a parent is one that's pretty just as exciting as my career for me. And um, I love my, my wife, very lovely wife, that has just been a, an awesome partner. And um, can't say enough about her. She's been an encouragement and uh, 
one of my biggest cheerleaders as I grow as a as a man in uh, in the business world as a man of God. So, you know, she's just been awesome in that arena for me. You know, hobbies and stuff like that. I build things. I've uh, built many many toys in my career and in my life, and I enjoy tinkering. I enjoy getting in the garage and uh, uh, exercising my brain a little bit rather than sitting in front of the TV. And uh, over that course, I've built a few hot rods, a few boats, motorhome, a few little tiny things here and there. Um, other than that, that's me. So I know that most of our listeners will not be familiar with the waste management industry. I mean, you know, from our perspective on the outside, we see the truck pull up on the side of the street and it reaches out that, that arm and it grabs the trash can and it shakes it in the top of the truck. And that's the last we see of our garbage coming from the house. So how complicated is the waste management industry? Well, you know, um, prior to my waste management uh, time, when I worked for actual waste management in the waste industry, um, I worked for Caterpillar for 16 years. I worked in the cat dealer networks and uh, worked for a couple of different cat dealerships. And I, for one, thought the same thing. I looked at the waste industry and thought, well, this isn't that hard. How hard can it be? You know, guy shows up, takes your can, off it goes. Um, when I left the uh, cat dealer network and I went to work for Waste Management, the company, which at the time and still is the number one environmental company in the uh, United States, and is within the waste industry, you do see a lot of people with waste management on their title, but I worked for the actual waste management company that started out of Chicago many years ago. And uh, the, they're the green and white trucks you see on the road today. And um, it, uh, I was shocked when I entered the industry. I realized how uninformed and unknowing I was of the industry. And uh, I spent the first year with my jaw on the ground, not fully understanding everything that goes on behind the scenes which is a, a testament to waste management and the other rubbish companies out there that make it so simple. I mean, what better model than to have a corporation that end user looks at you and goes, thanks, and it's a done deal. There's no worry about anything else after that. And um, I thought that was amazing when I first realized that, you know, you walk out in the morning and your biggest goal is to make sure the can is out on the street. And after that, you have no more worries. And you know, it's not like going to a doctor where when you're done, you have to go back for a follow-up appointment or you got to watch you know, pills for the next 12 days or you've got to do other things or um, monitor things and worry about stuff. What I realized when I entered the industry was it's divided up into two. There's a post-collection and a collection. The collection side of the industry is what you see every day in front of your house. Those are the trucks that come to your house to pick up the trash. Um, the post-collection is what they do with it after it gets out of the truck. I worked on the post-collection side. Um, the post-collection side is made up of landfills, transfer stations, and MRFs. MRFs are material recycling facilities. Obviously, you know what landfills are. And transfer stations are basic trucking stations that these trucks will go to to dump their loads and go back out to pick up more on route without having to drive far distances to get and dump the loads. So for example, um, you have a metropolitan area that is very dense, and that's Let's say those trucks are actually picking up anywhere between 140 to 150 homes an hour. And they're working an eight-hour day. And they're trying to pick up as many as possible before the, the day's over because that's their scheduled day. They don't have time to leave route and go 30, 40, 50 miles to a landfill or a MRF to dump their load. So you strategically place a transfer station within that metropolitan area that those trucks will go to. And out of that transfer station, you have a large 
55-foot trailer that they would load four or five of these trash trucks into, and that one truck would go to a transfer station, or excuse me, go to a MRF and go to a landfill and dump its load. So that's what a transfer station is, and obviously you know what a landfill. When you get deep into a landfill, you, you, you look at the environmental impact. The best way I've described a landfill to people is if I told you you had a million dollars and I put them all in ones on the corner of a desk and I gave you a round plastic ball with a small hole on top and I said you, have, you can have as many one dollar bills as you can stuff in that plastic round ball you would find out 50 million different ways to effectively put it in there <laughs> to make sure you walked out with enough of those ones. A landfill is the same concept. You have a round space and you have a period and you have to develop efficient ways to compact and get as much into that sphere as possible before you run out of time or run out of space. And it's an engineered fill, which means every cell that you put in there is engineered with that idea of that round ball. So in order to make a landfill last a long time, you have to be able to plan out, we're going to take in so much tonnage per day, we're going to pack it a certain way. They used to have models of compaction to where you knew percentage and whatnot and, and be able to graph it and show where everything's at. And, um, and while you're doing all that, you're being environmentally sound. You're making sure there's no batteries or liquids going into landfills that those are properly disposed of. You have uh, things at the front of the gate for recyclables that people bring recyclables in so they don't get put in the landfill. You have what they call CRTs, which is for the electronics. You definitely want to put electronics in the landfills with what's on those motherboards, like the gold, the silver, the zinc, you know, the things that they use to treat those. Plus, as a recyclable item, you know, you can pull them out, rebuild them, and put them back into service. So try to avoid all that going into landfill because that just eats up space. And then on top of that, making sure everybody's safe and, and environmentally around the landfill, everybody's okay, that nothing leaches out, nothing goes anywhere, that you know, water is the biggest killer of a landfill, so you have to deal with the water and whatnot, and how that affects the equipment was, was where I was at. And then within the MRF stations that I was also over, you know, you have huge multi-million dollar lines that take your normal can of trash and you dump it on a conveyor belt. And what comes out the other end is the plastics go one way, the cardboard goes another way, the paper goes one way, the glass goes another way. Um, all those items get separated out to the best of their ability, cubed up, and then put back on the open market for recyclables. Um, so you figure you got a machine that does that all day long, and it's technically advanced beyond what you would ever dream of with uh, you know, uh, light sensors, air, pushing things around, conveyor belts at different speeds. They have uh, Lubo, what they call Lubo, which is stars to move material up over top and let certain material fall down. And we'll just go through this whole thing into a bunker and then off into a baler. So it was, it was quite ordeal. It was not just, hey, we got your can and we'll top it in the, in the next hole that we find. It was very uh, advanced in what they would do. So what percentage of the business is the collection side and what percentage of the business is the post-collection side? Just, at, just on a round guess. Um, when you look at percentage, um, you kind of divide it up into a couple different categories. Okay. When you look at um, assets, uh, the collection side always had more assets because you had more trucks on the road, you had more labor. So labor expense was very high in the collection side. That was a really big driver. When you get to the post-collection side, you figure you've got a landfill, you've got machines that are, are able to take on a lot more capacity um, as far as what they're able to push or what they're able to process. So um, you wouldn't need as many labor force people, so to speak, because the machine was doing most of the work. So labor-wise, the collection side had more than the post-collection side. Asset-wise, the collection side had more than the post-collection side. 
uh, profitability, the margins or the yield on a post-collection side was much higher than a collection side because you know the expenses on a collection side for all the assets and things that go along with that and all the contracts ate up some of the expense. You know, they ate up some of the profits keeping that going. But and if you look at it, you can't just divide. You have to have the whole model. It's easy to say the post-collection side makes more money than the collection side, but at the end of the day, they're, they're symbolic to each other. They have to work together. The, if they don't, you can't just have one or the other because if you have one or the other, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to service your customer and control your costs. So you have to have both with each other. So I always looked at it as one. I never really divided it. I never looked on it as, um, well, that's them and this is us. And We needed them as much as they needed us. We needed the trucks to bring us the material, and they needed to be able to dump the material and process it. So let me ask you a different question then. In round numbers, if you had a city of, say, 300,000, and you were going to go in and start a facility there, landfill, you know, transfer stations, recycling facilities, how much would it cost to go in and serve a community like that? Like, like what, what's your initial investment? Is it $50 million? How, how much do you spend getting started on something like that? Well, you know what? When you look at, uh, there's so many variables that go into that as far as, um, you know, performance, performance basically looking at what you want to do and mapping it out and saying, you know, it's going to cost this much and that much and we need this many people and this is what these people are going to do. And each contract's different. Some cities require, um, for instance, uh, you offer two times a year for bulky pickup. Some want five times a year. Some want free cans. Some don't. You know, the contract really predicts where it's going to cost and going to be. Um, when it goes in the landfills, landfills are very costly up front because you got to dig a big hole. You know, that big hole is going to cost you a couple million bucks to, to get it dug and then lined and ready to go and scale houses and all that kind of stuff. Plus, you figure you got years of permits before you even get there. You have to line it? Yes. Every landfill is lined in the United States except for the ones prior to... You know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, I believe it was in the 70s somewhere or the 80s where they came in and there's a um, mandate from the government, and I'm losing my brain on what it was, but um, that's when the Superfund came out. And okay, I kind of remember that. Yeah, so every landfill is required to be lined, and there's a, a certain liner, engineered liner, that goes to it that's a, a series of of materials and a series of, of building to get to it to where it doesn't puncture, doesn't poke through, and everything stays inside. Is it water permeable? Yes. Okay. What's it supposed to keep inside? Everything. Except so, water. Except, no, excuse me, let me, let me go backwards on that. It's not water permeable, but it keeps the water inside to where you pump it out. And then it, once you pump it out, it's called leachate, and then you dispose of it. Okay, so, ways so you have to treat it. the water as it comes um, out It or depends on, on where you're at what you're doing. Like in California, you're able to pump the water out, and then you spread it back over the landfill and it evaporates. So all the nasty material stays in the landfill and the water goes back up. Places like Oregon and Washington where the rain is so prevalent, you don't have an opportunity. You don't have enough sunny days to dissipate the water, so you have to treat it or you have to dispose of it as a, as a waste product. That sounds complicated. <laughs> yes, it is. I probably destroyed how it really happens. <laughs> you, just, um, you just evaporated like this happy little trash <laughs> truck coming to pick up my stuff, and my, you know, my 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 landfill, you know, trash goes back to the landfill and becomes dirt, and we grow corn in that or something. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we'll let that go. So what I'm one of the things I'm interested in talking to you about uh, there, you and you and I have talked about this a little before. 
tell us a little bit about your experience as a manager. You know, we when we come through school these days, we, we get a lot of technical information about writing and English and math, um, you know, maybe some science, you know, PE and some other, you know, a few other subjects. What's your perspective uh, as a manager of uh, maybe the last 15 years of students coming um, into the workforce? Have you noticed any changes or differences from your perspective? It's kind of unique. I, I went through a project at Waste Management where we were developing um, a training time for operators. And uh, we were teaming up with some of the OEMs and whatnot to come up with this project. And one of the things that uh, the, the gal that was the head trainer of it that brought out was the difference in people by era and how they've studied people by certain areas and how people view things and how they are taught or desire to get things done in the workplace. And that really gave me an eye-opener because for quite a while early on in my management career, I really um, developed a dis and despised people. Um, <laughs> I, I really um, questioned myself. I uh, was really down on people. And, and I realized early on that that was my inexperience as a manager in understanding that. And through the course of some great people I worked with and early on in my career that had a better understanding, coaching me and mentoring me and helping me get through those tough first two or three years, I developed a different understanding. My hatred for people came in and changed into more of a, an understanding and a compassion versus a hatred of what's your problem. I went through that period <laughs> where I was like, there's something wrong with you. You must be broke. But uh, what I come to realize is education's great. And education, I've never heard anybody in my entire life say an education hurt me. I've never heard that. I've heard people say an education was tough. An education was, it helped me, but I wasn't sure I got everything I wanted. You know, again, you go back to their participation level. But as far as education and people and managers coming out today, I view it as a runner. Everybody can run. Everybody has the ability to run. Now, depending on how much you run develops how good of a runner you really are. People that are running marathons, they run quite a bit, and they do really well at it. I, myself, can barely run down the driveway without falling over. So I would not consider myself a marathon runner. Um, but as far as a manager goes, I would consider myself a marathon manager because I've taken the time to not only go back to school for an education and understand how that is a tool, not a birthright or a right to be a manager, but as a tool to help me be a successful manager. And uh, when I look at the kids or the people, I say people coming out of college today with an education, there is one underline. Out of 10 of them, I'll find eight that think because they've got an education that they are above the rest and management. They think that they deserve to go right in to be the next Bill Gates of the world. And I'll find two that realized that was a great learning time. Where's my next learning time? And those are the ones that become the really good managers. Those are the ones that go, you know what? I understand it now. I get it. The light bulb goes off. The other eight spend about a year in their career realizing this isn't what I thought it was because they had the wrong concept when they went in. Interesting. That wasn't what I expected you to say. <laughs> <laughs> so before we uh, take our left-hand turn here toward education, I ask you a few more questions there. Uh, you mentioned something the other day, and it just stuck in my mind. I think it would be f fun to, to tell our listeners about this. Um, you mentioned uh, once or twice in your career having uh, 
people in black suburbans and black suits and black sunglasses show up at your facility to do stuff, why would uh, federal investigators or uh, uh, law enforcement care at all what happens with your trash? Well, you have to realize everybody creates waste. From law enforcement to firemen to the guy in the airplane flying to the President of the United States. And as you know, when you think about what you do in a personal uh, sense, you throw it in the trash can and you don't worry about it. You don't even think about it. You can take your financial statement and throw it in your can and not even worry about it because you think, oh, it's done. Well, those same people do the same thing. They do it at home, they do it at work. So when I worked for waste management, the landfill took custom loads from down south that were people bringing, a pro bringing across products that were not taxed correctly or fell underneath the tariffs correctly. So they were caught at the, at the border and the Border Patrol put, took them over all the way to drugs and paraphernalia, such as all kinds of drugs. Those all came to your landfill. So the guys with the black suits and the guns or whatever would show up to make sure that it ended its life at the landfill. Um, unfortunately, people are people, and some people decide they want it. So you have to guard it and make sure that it gets disposed <laughs> of correctly. Um, I remember a 55-foot trailer showing up with drug paraphernalia and shoving it out the back end, and there, there you are. You're looking at the most drugs you've ever seen in your entire life, more than you've ever seen on TV. You know, and a drug agent, DEA agent, standing right there, making sure it gets disposed of. You know, so you can imagine the president of the United States throwing a piece of paper away with his signature on it. What could you do if you can copy the president of the United States' signature? You need to make sure that that thing gets to where it needs to be and disposed of correctly. Um, you know, within waste management, they have their own security and whatnot, and and it was monitored closely because obviously at the time, you want your customer base to trust you. You want your customers to know that. You're, they're safe in your presence. So it was very well known that uh, security and attention to detail was key for taking that sense of items, making sure those items got disposed of correctly and did not make it back out into circulation. You have totally just destroyed my, my view of the trash <laughs> industry. <laughs> it's, it suddenly has this sort of high-tech, you know, uh, clandestine feel about it now. <laughs> you're, you're feeling the same way I did my first year. My first year, I walked in going, oh, this ought to be easy. Uh, after 12 months, I was like, this is not easy. <laughs> There's a lot more to this than what I ever gave it credit for. All right, so we're going to take a left-hand turn here because our audience likes to think a lot about education. We have a lot of teachers in our, our audience and uh, administrators and educators. And with your experience uh, the last, um, I don't know, how, how long, 15, 20 years you've been in management? About 15. 15 years. We now have, you know, in the last sort of 10 years, the ability to go out and Google something or uh, pull up, uh, you know, a YouTube video on how to do something or go look on Wikipedia and find out, you know, some in-depth information on a subject that we didn't know before. In that type of an environment, from your perspective, what, what does it mean to be educated? You know, it's interesting you put it that way. You know, um, I don't think people put enough value on what they're really looking at when you talk about having access to this information. Um, I've, I've been in fleet maintenance my whole career, from a mechanic all the way up to managing fleets, purchasing, you name it. And one thing I've realized is information is key. Information in the right person's hand is key. The 
ability to search on the internet or have all this information right in front of you is great, but I personally feel it's only great for the person that has still understands how to critically think. And I say that with the understanding that I can give a kid a crayon and tell a kid, hey, this crayon will mark on that paper. And here's a Google page that shows you how to mark it. And that kid will successfully mark on that paper. But I could put a crayon into somebody that's an artist that understands how to effectively use that crayon and they make a picture. They understood Google. They used Google to say, hey, where's my theme? Or where's some information on, on, on different kinds of paper? But at the end of the day, they still understood what they were doing. In the world of fleet maintenance, you have different kind of levels of maintenance. You have reactive maintenance, and you have proactive maintenance, and then you get all the way into predictive. The reason you have different kinds of maintenance is to control your costs. A reactive fleet, where you're just reacting when it breaks, costs you a fortune to run. A proactive fleet where you're looking at it going, proactively, I know that that wheel bearing or that rod will fail at 10,000 miles. And at 9,959, there's my window to bring it in before it fails. So if you did a reactive, you wait for it to fail, and I think it cost you $2,000 to fix. You do it on a proactive, it costs you 500 bucks, $1,500 profit back to your bottom line. That's the difference between the information and a person that understands and a person that doesn't understand. And I look at Google and I look at all the technology and realize that's great information, but it's only good information with the person that truly understands how to utilize that information, not only for the benefit of themselves, but for the benefit of the company. So in education, this perspective is still beyond the information. The education is not just, yes, I know how to type it into Google. It's, I know what to do with the information once it comes out. I really believe that an education fills the gap. I really believe that an education um, helps develop your critical thinking and also helps develop those sensors inside you that say, hey, wait a minute, what's the right thing to do? Where do I need to go? What, what is it that I need to do to make this right? Google can't tell you how to handle a person. They can give you forms that say, here's the write-up or here's a coaching session, but they can't tell you how to talk to that person. They can't develop your ability to talk to that person. Um, they can't develop your sensors. In college, you practice on all of that. You learn how to speak. You learn how to work in teams. You learn how to communicate to your professor who you don't know. And then through your course of careers, or your, course of your courses, you go through 15, 20, 30, 50 different professors that you can learn how to communicate with, plus students that you like and don't like that you can learn how to get along with. There's almost an underlying training in college that people really don't look at, and that's the social part. Do you think a lot of people get through college without taking advantage of that? I do. Or I think people go through college and not recognize the advantage of that. They look on it as a, a sub, something that is a necessary evil. So if you were talking to a student who was just entering college about the kinds of things they should learn while they're in college, in addition to whatever classes their advisor says they should take, what would you tell them to, to pay attention to? You know, I would look at a college student that's going in school right now, and I would tell them, don't forget, those people that are sitting in the classroom with you, they're just as human as you are. And they're figuring out how to develop just like you are. And if you ignore them, you're ignoring yourself. If you ignore the challenge of working in a team, or you ignore the challenge of supporting somebody else, or getting support 
through uh, your learning time, you're ignoring yourself and you're really not going to develop yourself because you're going to take that same mentality with your degree and you're going to walk out of school with it. Well, let's take let's take another left-hand turn as we as we wrap this up. We've been talking about uh, your particular industry and your your view on uh, the education system, particularly the college education system here. With that in mind, what would you say is the purpose of an education? The purpose of an education, wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, I know when you look at people going through school today, it seems like the next step. It seems like it's the the course that happens. You know, I went to elementary school, now I gotta go to junior high. I went to junior high, now I gotta go to college or high school. I went to high school, now I gotta go to college. I, for one, and, and most people don't know this, I finished all my education after a period of time of not going to school. I graduated high school and I went to uh, a couple of colleges and I flunked out um, because I simply did not take advantage of what I'm, I'm talking about today. I viewed college as a necessary evil to keep my parents off my back so I didn't have to start paying rent. I had a car. I had a job that paid minimum wage. I had gas money. And uh, college ate up my morning hours. Or ate up my evening hours. It ate up my time. And so I had a period of time where I did work and I didn't have an education where I was ditching classes and not going. And uh, it wasn't until years later that I really recognized what I needed to do. And it was because of my education uh, or desire to succeed that I realized the missing link in my education was me. It was me devoting the time. It was me devoting what I should have done a long time ago, which was understand how to read and write, understand how to communicate, understand the advantages of being able to do math um, successfully. Um, so I didn't go back to college until I was probably 27. Wow. About that. So I have a passion for college and education, and I have a passion for it because I did live a period without it, and I recognized without it, I was not only not as successful as I could have been in the workplace, but I was also not as successful as I could have been at home. Do you think you valued it more because you took a, period, a time off before you came back to it? I valued it more not because I took a time off, but that time off brought to light things I should have known when I went in. I did not value the workplace at the time. I did not value the economy at the time. I did not value the fact that I was going to be married, going to have kids, and I was going to need to provide for other people. All I valued was my own self. And because I didn't even value myself that much, finances and success was not key. And um, I personally grew through that experience and realized that I had a calling to be a leader and that what I was doing was the opposite of my calling. That's why I went back. I didn't go back to get an education. I went back to complete a calling, to complete what I knew inside me needed to be done. And I recognized that because I was so unsuccessful beforehand. And I really believe college kids that come out of high school to go to college that have a good mentor or have people around them to support them understand that more. They understand the value of it because they get to see it. Um, I came from a home where my dad got a GED and my mom graduated high school. And that was where it stopped. And I grew up without the value of an education. I grew up thinking high school was it. 
you know, when I graduated high school, we were still building cars out in Van Nuys. McDonnell Douglas was still producing airplanes down in Lakewood. You didn't have to drive far to go find a job where you were sitting on an assembly line, putting bolts in, making a decent wage. As you know today, a lot of those jobs are gone. And people that depended on those jobs are they're not there anymore. Or they're moving to the middle of the United States to do it. So I developed a value for education. I wish I could say I understood it. I wish I could say that I got it early on. But I had to be older and I had to do a lot of bumps and bruises to get there before I valued an education, before I understood how an education was a tool to help me be successful instead of my education was my success. So if you could wrap that question, you know, what is the purpose of an education into one or two sentences based on your experience you just shared here, for you, what was that purpose? My education and the purpose of my education was a self-revelation for me. It really was. I would love to tell you that I had a desire for it. I didn't. I would love to tell you that I understood it. I didn't. But what I did know is my education opened doors for me that I never could have opened by myself. And I knew I needed to go through those doors. And those doors are for everybody. Everybody has doors. Everybody knows where they need to go. And you're not going to get where you want to be if you stand around and assume that you're just going to get there. I really believe that you, you need to help yourself. You really need to develop yourself. I really believe that your mind is like the muscle on your arm. It will wither away and be nothing if you don't continue to work it out. Excellent. Well, I don't think we could end anywhere better than that. Uh, thank you, Mike, for taking some time to talk to us. And uh, would you like to share with people how they might be able to get in touch with you if they want to ask you more questions about <laughs> what it is you do? <laughs> um, you know what? Anybody can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll uh, link that up in the show notes then. Thank you, Mike, for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I hope I was uh, helpful. That's perfect. Thank you. This week's Great Inventor Secrets is actually brought to us by Jonathan Butcher and Daniel Chung, who are featured on last week's podcast. We had so much great material that I wanted to share a few more minutes of our conversation with a couple of great inventors. Well, the way, the way I think now is very different than the way I thought even five years ago. I mean, you just, like, it's an old antiquated thought process if you think that you can just you know push the same levers for a career and and that is essentially what happens but the way things work is that if you are just in a mindset that you always have to you know just you're just naturally wanting to to innovate and you're naturally curious about how things work and what new knowledge means, et cetera. Uh, I mean, you're going to, those are the kind of people that have the greatest chance of a meaningful impact on society. And those aren't necessarily the Zuckerbergs, because you could even argue that there are people like those, those guys that, you know, they make their mark and then they sort of ride the wave. You know, the people who are going to really have the most lasting impact are, are the teachers. They're always thinking about how to be better at their job at educating, you know, students. I, I may actually quote that, put that in the, on the show notes because I think I think teachers teachers would like to hear that. It's it is a big deal to have a, a teacher that understands the learning process. And one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is I like to bring out this idea of um, iterative thinking 
uh, and using failure as a tool rather than as an endpoint. Because I think a lot of people I see think, failure as an endpoint, and, and I'd like to change that view. But I think without mm-hmm. interviewing a bunch of successful people and having them all say the same thing, and I continue to hear the same kinds of things. You know, failure is not the endpoint; it is a learning process. And I think if I do that enough, and I think if people hear it enough, that we can start to change that view in the education system. And I mean, our target audience is you know K twelve educators, and one of the reasons yeah. I talk to people like you is because I want you to tell them why you are mm-hmm. successful, and I want them to hear it. I want it to mean something to them. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say two things about that. One, I'm not so sure that teachers want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I don't think they do. Uh, some of them do. So, you know, some some of them do just because their skills aren't monetized, the ones that are, you know, constantly thinking about innovating, because they can be not doing that and being compensated the same amount. But I would also say that this concept of failure as a learning tool, I think is going to be very ineffective unless you are clear about goals. So setting goals and having expectations about those goals are the only way that you can turn learning or playing into learning. So people play all the time, you know, put blocks on top of each other and then, you know, five blocks and they all fall down or whatever. But unless you have a goal in mind, you're not actually thinking about those relationships that you could be learning. And that's just playing. And that happens even in the lab. Uh, if you don't have a very good experimental design, you're not going to capture those possible relationships. And then your ability to actually learn from what you did becomes very little. So it's really important that being able to have goals in mind uh, you know, there's there's certain something about goals, something about those objectives that turns playing into learning. And I, I'm you know I'm sure there's like mountains of educational literature of people putting those things in. That may or may not be true, actually. I mean, I've yeah. I've heard people talk around that topic, but I've never heard anyone put it quite the way you just did. And I think you're right. I mean, I I've watched in the the inventor boot camps that we do. So we we take a 3D printer and uh, uh, 3D design software, uh, CAD software specifically, and Arduino um, uh, electronics controllers into a room with kids who've never seen it before, and we give them a challenge. Uh, basically, what you said, give them a goal. They have to end somewhere, so it has to give it has to be meaningful when they get done. You know, they have mm-hmm. to reach you know an endpoint that that does something. Mm-hmm. And there's a point in there where they hit the bottom and they get frustrated that they can't figure it out. And it's right there that the learning begins to happen because yeah. that's the point at which they turn toward the solution or turn toward, I can't do this. And right there is where the teacher really needs to understand the process. And I feel like in education, we don't do that as much, but I, I know that there are teachers that do. And those of us who have pushed through and gotten a great education, we can probably point back to someone that, that helped us figure out how to navigate that. Yeah, I mean, I find that there are certain classes of people, and at least in the students that I see, there are certain types of students that no matter what problem you give them, somehow in their mind, they can just contort their perception of everything such that whatever that problem is, is the most interesting and important problem. And that's the one I'm going to dedicate you know, years to solving. This happens pretty much with every PhD student that joins our department or probably any department because you've got to figure out which lab you want to join and you can't always get the lab that you originally wanted to join 
So it's only certain types of people who can just turn their mind towards solving X problem over Y problem and just deciding, well, this is the one I'm going to solve and this is great because I'm going to, you know, it's almost like they just transform themselves. And certainly you could have a student that decides to be, consider their, you know, their entire life a victim of circumstance or people who take control of those things. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a hallmark of somebody who will probably be successful in what they do. Wow. Thank you guys so much. This is a lot of fun. Okay, great. Yeah, it was great. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm -hmm.